Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. The world has seen through the years some unusual births. Just last month in England, a 29-year-old Russian woman gave birth to quintuplets. Imagine birthing five girls at one time. Back in 1974, in Johannesburg, South Africa, the only up to that time surviving sextuplets were born. Three boys and three girls at one time. That record, however, was broken in 1997 when the media converged on Carlisle, Iowa, and the McNaughies proudly announced septuplets. Seven. Four boys, three girls, born at one time. That's where Costco comes in real handy. (laughs) Unusual births. And that's not all. Some children are born abnormally large. There was a child born to a couple in St. Louis. He weighed 16 pounds plus. I know all the girls are going, ah, 16 pounds at birth. And he was only 22 inches long. That's for, you go, well, tell me the rest. His measurement around his shoulders was 20 inches. I know the NFL was there at the birth trying to recruit (laughs) that baby as soon as they could. These are unusual births. And the Bible has its own unusual births. Isaac, his birth would have been newsworthy, right? His mom was in her 90s when he was born. That's newsworthy. Paul spoke about the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was beyond the age of ability to deliver a child. That's an unusual birth. Samuel was an unusual birth. His mother Hannah was infertile until she prayed. John the Baptist, born of not only infertile but very elderly parents as well. These are unusual births. They're unusual but not unique. Because in all of those cases, modern and ancient, there was a human father involved in the conception of that child. But when we come to the birth of Jesus Christ, this is a singularly unique, marvelous event. It's a virgin birth. And we come to Isaiah chapter 7. We turn to Isaiah, the one who gave more references to the coming Messiah than anyone else in Scripture. In fact, he's most often quoted in the New Testament than anyone else. And it is Isaiah who alone predicts the virgin birth of Christ. It's in chapter 7. And we're going to start in verse 10 and read onward. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. That's the text. That's the prediction. And it is this prediction, principally verse 14, that in the New Testament Matthew extracts and says it is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Now that name sheds light on the person of Jesus Christ. He is God with us. He's from eternity past. He he was alive before his mother ever gave birth to him. I love reading children when they write letters to God. I have a little book in my library called Children's Letters to God. And one kid was trying to figure this all out and he said, Dear God, I understand you were around when my grandfather was a child. Just how far back do you go? You know, to that little kid, Grandpa is as old as it gets. The idea that someone was before Grandpa, man, I can't figure that one out. But this child, Emmanuel, God with us. Not everyone believes that. Not everyone believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Secularists do not. Humanists do not. Cultists do not. In fact, some who call themselves Christians don't believe in the virgin birth. Red Book Magazine, some years back, took a poll of students at Protestant seminaries and discovered 56% of those students studying for the ministry rejected the idea of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That means 56% will stand in the pulpits of churches denying what the Bible plainly says. Here's a breakdown. Survey Research Center, University of California, Berkeley, polled different denominations. This is what they came up with. 69% of American Baptists believe in the virgin birth. But that means 31% of them don't. 60% of Lutherans claim to believe in the virgin birth, which means 34% of them do not. 57% of United Presbyterians say they believe in the virgin birth of Christ. 57%, that means uh, 43% do not. 39% of Episcopalians believe in the virgin birth, which means 61% do not. 34% of the Methodists claim they believe in the virgin birth, which means 66% don't believe in it. And finally, 21% of Congregationalists claim to believe in the virgin birth, which means 79% do not believe in the virgin birth. Here's my point. Never base your theology on majority rule. If you do, you'll be wrong. The best way to base what you believe in is believing in the plain reading of the biblical text. Now, I know that what I just said in those statistics and quotes may come off a little bit elitist and even arrogant. And I'll risk that. 
because the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is just so important. And we want to look at that today. I I want to devote the whole morning to studying this chapter and its fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew. What I'd like to do in looking at this is talk about first the setting. When Isaiah spoke this to Ahaz, the guy mentioned here, what's going on? What is the setting? Number two, the sign itself that is predicted in verse 14. And then third, the Savior who is Emmanuel. Those three items will take up our time this morning. So let's look at the setting. A fresh reading of these six verses in Isaiah chapter 7 reveal to us that it is a prediction that has immediate fulfillment as well as ultimate fulfillment. There's a local thing going on, a local predicament, as well as a global prediction, all covered in these verses. Now let's go back. When the prophet Isaiah spoke the words that we just read, there were dark clouds looming over the social horizon of Judah. Ahaz was the king of Judah at this time. That's the guy we just read. But there was something going on that helps us understand the text. There were two kings up north, one by the name of Pekah. He was the king of Israel, the ten northern tribes. The other was named Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N. He was the king of Damascus in Syria. Those two kings formed a coalition against the king of Assyria. The great Assyrian empire was pressing down upon the world and about ready to take it over. Those two kings, Pekah and Rezin, formed a coalition to fight against Assyria. They asked King Ahaz down south to join the coalition. He refused. They said, fine, if you won't join our coalition, then we will come and attack you. Well, he reacted. He was desperate. So what he did, King Ahaz, was send a bribe through some envoys, some bribe money, to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, and said, look, let me give you some money. Do me a favor. These two guys are threatening to attack me. Here's some money to buy you off. Would you please attack them before they attack me? And then... At that point, Isaiah the prophet walks in and says, you've got nothing to worry about. Don't worry about those two kings. It's in total control. God is going to protect you. God is going to take care of you. And that comprises verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 7. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 10, which we started to read, the prophet continues his conversation and says, Hey, Ahaz, ask God for a sign. And he pretends to be very spiritual and very humble. I, I won't ask God for a sign. I won't test the Lord. He's sounding very humble, but he's not. It's fake. Uh, he's saying, I won't test the Lord. What he really means is, I won't trust the Lord. He had already put his trust in Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. I'm not going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the king of Assyria to protect me. But he says, I'm not going to test the Lord. I won't ask for a sign. So Isaiah said, fine. God will give you a sign anyway. Virgin's going to conceive. Call his son when he's born Emmanuel. Now Emmanuel is a Hebrew word, a Hebrew construction. means God with us. We know that ultimately that refers to Jesus Christ, the incarnation. 
But it meant something to King Ahaz, or it was supposed to. And that was God's protection. It it had an immediate fulfillment. You see, King Ahaz, in seeing a boy named Emmanuel, some think it was actually Isaiah's son, second son that would be called that, would be a sign of God's protection. Now this is how it would work. How many months does it take for a child to develop in the womb before birth? Typically, nine months from conception to birth. That's the gestation period of a human person. So those nine months, followed by two to three years of weaning to solid food, that's the idea of verses 15 and 16, curds and honey he will eat. That's, the, that's that uh, weaning period. So the point is this. Within two to three years, these two kings that you're so afraid of are no longer going to be a threat. That's the sign by that child. God is going to preserve and protect you. But... Now watch this. In verse 13, the prophet Isaiah widens the prediction out to include the whole house of David. Not just King Ahaz, but it's to the whole house of David. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. So the house of David was to be looking for the sign that is predicted in verse 14. Okay, fast forward 700 years to the New Testament. Jesus is born. A guy named Matthew is writing down his gospel. And Matthew pulls out this reference in Isaiah 7 and says to the house of David, this boy is that sign that Isaiah predicted. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. It's a prophecy. It's predictive. And by the way, One of the most impressive things about the book that you and I hold called the Bible is how much prediction, prophecy is in it. One of the things that separates the Bible from all other books that claim to be Scripture, 25, 26 some odd books that claim to be words of their God, their religious system, one of the things they all lack is prophecy. Prophecy. They may have some vague or silly prophecy, but not like this book. In fact, what God says to the same prophet Isaiah later on is, hey, compare me and my track record to all of the other nations and gods and goddesses. I alone can talk about the end from the very beginning. I can write history in advance through prophecy. I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Very incredible. Jesus fulfilled 330, they say, over 300 predictions made about him at his first coming. That's astronomical, the odds of that happening. A few years back, the National Enquirer, and I know that's an odd thing for a guy preaching a sermon to pull out as a source material, but the National Enquirer wrote a little article about prophecy. And uh, the article was called Modern Day Prophets. They asked modern day prognosticators to predict six months of the future. Tell us what's going to happen within six months in pop culture, in music, etc., etc., sports. 61 predictions were made by modern day prophets, prognosticators. Take a guess at, at what percentage were right. You think maybe half? I mean, you could, you could make a prediction vague enough that it would be fulfilled. 
You think maybe 50%, right? Maybe 20%, 10%, zero. Not a single prediction of the 61 predictions made happened. Modern day prophets. This ancient prophet got it right and spoke so 700 years before. Okay, that's the setting. Look at verse 14 more carefully. Consider the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Alf is the Hebrew word. It means a signal, a mark, a token. could be translated a miracle, a sign. And what is the sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Stop right there. That's a sign. When is the last time you heard of a virgin conceiving? You know... When a young woman steps into a gynecologist's office in a hospital and gets an ultrasound, the doctor says, you're pregnant. Oh, thank you. We've been trying, she might say. But if the woman steps in and says, you know, I've never been with any human being physically, sexually ever. And the doctor says, well, the ultrasound says you're pregnant. That's a sign. A few years back, Larry King was being interviewed. He was not interviewing. He was interviewed by someone. The interviewer said, Larry, if you had the chance to reach back in history and interview anybody, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. Interviewer said, really, what would you ask Jesus Christ? And Larry said, in his hefty voice. He said, I'd ask Jesus Christ if he was born of a virgin. Because the answer to that question, said Larry King, would define history for me. That's an interesting statement. Understand, though, Larry King is Jewish. And the virgin birth was to be assigned to the Jewish nation, the house of David. They were to look for that, the virgin birth. However, the virgin birth is attacked by liberal scholars. Now, when I use the term liberal scholars... I'm not using it in political terms. I'm talking about those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, all the key doctrines liberal Christian scholars deny. And this is often what they will say. They will say, well, you know, and a lot of times they love to talk in sort of, I'm smarter than you tones, and those, you know. The word in Hebrew for virgin is actually the word alma, which is true. And they say, Alma means a young woman. A young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. It can just simply mean a young woman. So when I hear that, you know what I do? I smile really big. Or or I laugh. And I say, really? Well, then what's the big deal? How is that some big sign? Okay, listen to it put in in their translation. Ready? Behold, a sign will happen. A young woman of marriageable age will get pregnant. You go, woo, big deal. That happens every day. How is that a sign? Exactly. It's not a sign. It's commonplace. But for a virgin to conceive, that'd be a sign, a token, a red flag, a miracle. And in fact, that word Alma in Hebrew is often translated as 
specifically a virgin, not a young woman. I think that's the intention here. Here's a couple of instances of that. Genesis 24:43. Abraham's servant was searching for a virgin bride, Alma, for Isaac, Abraham's son. Proverbs 30, verse 19. The writer Solomon was amazed at the awkwardness of a young man with his Alma, virgin bride. Song of Solomon, chapters 1 and 6. Solomon writes about his own fiancée, Shunammite bride, and Alma, a virgin who would be married to Solomon soon. But all that aside, why argue about Isaiah's choice of words when all you have to do is read God's own commentary on Isaiah chapter 7? Ready? Let's look at that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, first page of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Let's see what Matthew, the writer, the Christmas story, what it yields. Matthew chapter 1. As you turn to that first page in your New Testament, take you down to verse 18. Now, he says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, notice that, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, here it is, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took him to his wife and did not know her or have sexual relations with her, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew says, in commenting on Isaiah chapter 1, after bringing this text from the past 700 years earlier to the present, he puts the note that Mary had no sexual relations at all until after Jesus was born into this world. And he says what Isaiah said, virgin will conceive. Now, the word that that Matthew uses is different than Isaiah. There's good reason for that. Isaiah wrote in what language? Hebrew. Matthew wrote in Greek. So he's not going to use a Hebrew word. He's going to use a Greek word. And the Greek word that Matthew uses is the word parthenos. You've heard of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. It means uh, the place of the virgin. It can only mean parthenos, a virgin girl. That's what it means, a virgin girl, a Parthenos. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Let's take a look at chapter 1 of Luke. Good, you caught that. That's good. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, Christmas story again. 
Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, Parthenos, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Or, that's an old way of saying, I've never been physically with any man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born to you will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for who who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. All right. Matthew notes she's a virgin. Luke, who was a doctor and would know these things, calls her a virgin. Mary says herself, she's a virgin. Uh, Joseph acknowledged she's a virgin. And the angel agreed, said back to Mary, who thought it was impossible, I acknowledge basically that you're a virgin. So all of this is a sign. This is a sign. Now, in Isaiah, it is predicted that the sign would be a virgin turning up pregnant, conceiving. And then he said, she will bear a son. A son. There is a reproductive process known as parthenogenesis. I just want to throw this in because it's funny how this gets brought up when you discuss this with secularists. Now, parthenogenesis is the ability to reproduce in organisms without fertilization. And there are certain species of lower animals and insects where this is common. And, believe it or not, some will point to that physical, natural phenomena called parthenogenesis when they talk about the virgin birth. And this is what they'll say. Well, you know, the virgin birth isn't really all that unique. There are several species where there is this natural reproduction called parthenogenesis which means, by the way, virgin birth. It's idiotic, really, when you're going to compare low-life invertebrates to human beings. And a lot of tests were done, and in the 1940s, a scientist by the name of Gregory Pincus did a lot of this research and proved that if Mary had conceived parthenogenically, she would have had a daughter and not a son, that it's scientifically impossible. Here's the whole point. Here's the real truth. God himself humbled himself to become a single cell in the womb of a young woman who was a virgin. God allowed himself to be covered with embryonic fluid for nine months and be birthed. 
that is the sign. It is not natural conception. It's not parthenogenesis. This is pneumogenesis, if it's anything. Spirit conceived. Spirit born. Now, why is this so important? Why is the virgin birth such a key doctrine? And why am I taking a whole Sunday to cover this? Here's why. If Jesus Christ was born like every other human being, if Jesus Christ is not God in sinless human flesh, then we have no Savior. We have no Savior. Because that would mean Jesus is either the illegitimate son of Mary, born out of wedlock, or the natural result of normal sexual activity between Joseph and Mary. Either way, if those are true, Jesus isn't God. If Jesus isn't God, then his claims are lies, because he said he was. If his claims are lies, then his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, we're all lost, doomed forever. That's why this virgin birth is so important. John Walverd, past president of Dallas Seminary, said the whole construct of theology rests upon that thread of the virgin birth. See, the essence of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. If Jesus had a human father, then just throw your Bible away. Because the Bible says he didn't. He was born of a virgin. There's another reason why this is so important. The virgin birth. A couple of times in Leviticus 17, it's repeated this phrase, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. A few years back, Dr. Martin Dehan, MD, he was a medical doctor, pointed out that a child inherits the bloodline from its father. The vascular system of a child is developed um, autonomously in the womb. It's its own blood flow, but that the inherited bloodline comes from the father. And he said, since Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the blood was untainted by sin. Here's a direct quote from his book, The Chemistry of the Blood. Quote, How wonderfully God prepared for the virgin birth of his son. When he created woman, he made her so that no blood would be able to pass from her to her offspring. Conception by the Holy Spirit was the only way the virgin birth could be accomplished. The Holy Spirit contributed the blood of Jesus Christ. It is sinless blood. It is divine blood. It is precious blood, for there has never been any other like it. Yet, yet, liberal pastors, liberal Christians, theologians will deny the virgin birth, and they'll call it a myth. And some of them will say this, well, you know, Matthew was sort of ignorant. He was living in a day and an age when there were many virgin birth myths around. And by the way, there were. There was the idea that Alexander the Great was virgin born, was going around. A lot of myths. And so Matthew, well-meaning, wanted to give an explanation, and he came up with this myth. You want to know something weird? I knew you would. (laughs) Did you know that Muslims believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Check it out. Ask them. Find a theologian or get on the internet. Muslims believe Jesus Christ was virgin born. 
they'll tell you that Jesus Christ came about. They call him just a great prophet, but it was a miraculous intervention in the womb of Mary. He's miraculously virgin born. They also believe he ascended into heaven, did many miracles. Now, here's what's weird about it. It places the Muslim in the awkward, weird, strange position of defending the virgin birth against liberal Christian theologians who deny it and deny its possibility. That's weird. But it's happening. Let's close on this note. The Savior... That's the really central theme of the text. You will call, or she will call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Now that is applied ultimately to Jesus Christ, who is God with us. Now Emmanuel is a title. I think it's best to see it as a description or a title rather than a proper name. There's never a record in the New Testament that Jesus was called Emmanuel or that he walked down the street and his buddy said, Hey, Emmanuel! He could have been called privately by the one who brought him forth at home, Mary, Emmanuel. We just don't know. There's no mention of it. So it's best to see this as a description. This baby born will be God with us. Look at it this way. Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that we can understand. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about things, listen to what Jesus said. If you want to see what God's value system is, look at the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, remember to Philip, Philip, how long have we been together? You don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, when we see Jesus healing a blind man, we are seeing a compassionate God. When we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem, we're seeing a God who's hurt over sin. When we see Jesus teaching a crowd of people, we see a God who's concerned that people learn truth. And when we see Jesus hanging on a cross, we see God determined to deal with sin. So that's why Emmanuel, God with us, was with us. To take our sin, to deal with our sin, to give us hope. God became one of us, Emmanuel. Marie was a young woman when she was admitted to a mental hospital. When she got to the hospital, she was an emotional wreck. Marie had been raised by abusive, very violent parents. When she was 12 years of age, she had a very traumatic event. Her parents were arguing one night. They often argued. They were drunk and they were arguing in front of her and they were struggling physically over a handgun. The trigger went off. She heard the blast and young Marie, the 12 year old, watched as her father fell over slumping in his own blood and died in front of her eyes. It was traumatic as you can imagine. Painful. Anger filled her heart. She retreated into a fantasy world, but even her fantasy world after that was very violent. And Marie turned into an animal-like human. She would curse the people who got near. She'd hit them, kick them, scratch them if she could. Very abusive herself. She was admitted 
as a young woman to the mental institution. Doctors tried therapy after therapy to no avail. She was put in a padded cell. Then the doctors decided that they would try one final therapy, a then common, kind of a new on the scene therapy at the time called catharsis, where a person vents his or her rage at another person. The volunteer was a nurse of the institution named Hulda. Get this. Every day for a full hour, Hulda would sit in front of Marie, and as soon as she got close enough, Marie let it out. She would curse, she would kick, she'd hit Hulda, who took it all, scratch her. She took that abuse for an hour, and then afterwards, when Marie had vented everything and she was exhausted and fell into a corner, just so tired, Hulda would walk over to her, put her arm around Marie, pet her and say, I love you, Marie. Marie, I love you. Now imagine every day for an hour being Hulda, being hit, kicked, scratched, you're bruised, sometimes bleeding, holding that child saying, I love you, Marie, I love you. She did that every day. Over time, slowly but surely, it started to work. Love broke through. Marie was able to weep over the past. She had never cried after her 12-year-old episode. She talked about it. She dealt with it. And she returned to normalcy eventually. It was love that cured her. My point of that true illustration is that's what Emmanuel did on a much deeper level. By his stripes we are healed. Healed. He came to the earth, God with us, took all of the sin, all of the abuse to take away our sin. That's why Christmas is so significant. That's why I refuse not to say Merry Christmas. That's the hope because of what Emmanuel did. Now, King Ahaz, back in the original setting, was given a choice by the prophet. Ask for a sign. I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to test the Lord. No, you're not going to trust the Lord. You, you've already trusted in Assyria. You've made a choice not to trust God, but to trust in another superpower. Now, you have the same choice. You can trust in Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, who will take away your sin, bear your burden, and be with you, walk with you the rest of your life. Or you can trust in whatever else you trust in. Your own resources, your own worldview, whatever it is. That's your choice. But I know that Christmas is a lonely season for a lot of people. Maybe this is the first Christmas after a mother died or a father died or a brother died or a sister or a child or a friend. And there's an emptiness. The phone calls aren't there. The room is empty. And that sense of loneliness is more acute during this season. But we have God with us who walks with us through the darkest, gloomiest time. That's what Isaiah wanted to get across to Ahaz. That's what God is wanting to get across to us today. Will you trust Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young, unsuspecting mother, who herself couldn't believe what was happening. 
Thank you for what that means in terms of our atonement, blood shed, perfect, sinless blood of God shed for sinful human beings. Thank you for the atonement. Thank you for taking all of the abuse so that we could have a place in heaven. Lord, I pray for those who have come today or sitting in this main auditorium or in the hub in the overflow or in the family room or in different parts of the campus. We've gathered here and you've drawn us here. Lord, I pray that we take a further step if need be and that is to come to Jesus Christ, not to just celebrate him or sing about him or read about him. Maybe we've come from backgrounds where we've acknowledged that there is a God, but we've never made a personal commitment to the one who became God with us, the one who took our sin. And you said in your word that a man must be born again before he'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I pray that that choice, that choice would be made today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.